everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Carver and Strike and Robin Ellicott, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz. I'm Lindsay. I'm Pools. And today we'll be continuing our reread of The Running Grave, this time covering chapters 8 through 10 of part 1. Please be aware, as always, that our discussion of The Running Grave will often reference the ending of this book, as well as the rest of the books in the series. I guess we should talk a little bit more about our schedule change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's exciting. I love yeah. seeing how excited everyone was on oh, yeah. social media for weekly episodes. I know, but this is the only way we could do weekly episodes is to divide one recording into two, because otherwise it's, yeah. it's too hard. Mm-hmm. We learned that. The hard we way. That with Pink Buckheart. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to have two different intros that will just do another one halfway. So for the first part, you'll hear us do one of Joe's Q&As. And then for the second part, we'll do one of the listener questions that we got. So this week is our listener question. So if any news comes out, you won't, you know, we're still only recording every two weeks. So if you don't hear us talk about news or something, that's why. But for this one, we can get into one of our listener questions. All right. I think this is from Instagram, right? This is from Lady Gentleman. Blue is a recurring theme. Robin dyes the tips of her hair blue, and peacock blue is mentioned a few times. What do you think the significance of this is? And of course, there's blue as Strike's middle name, too. I really like this question. I want someone to do a full deep dive into the color blue in these books, because it's definitely a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's pretty common color. Well, I guess. <laughs> Maybe it's Joe's favorite. I don't think it is her favorite. What is her I favorite I swear color? recently she said her favorite color was pink. Pink. Interesting. I swear I saw that. I don't know if she said it recently or if I just saw it recently, but I do remember that Interesting. happening. I don't remember it. We have always said that we think it's Robin's favorite color. And yes. you will hear us talk about that later in this episode. But I also think that it's Strike's favorite color too, because mm. his car is blue. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not a big thing because blue is a really popular color for cars, right? But mm-hmm. it seems like he likes the women in his life in blue. His favorite dress of Charlotte's was that peacock blue wrap the dress. dress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He mentions in Lethal White that Lorelai looked lovely in a blue dress. And of course, there's Robin's blue dress, which he finds particularly sexy. Mm-hmm. And in The Running Grave, we see him remembering her blue shirt that she wore in Ink Black Heart when he's thinking back mm-hmm. on... What he now realizes was the night that he should have tried to talk to her about their feelings, right? So mm. if it isn't his favorite color, it's certainly somehow tied to romance and attraction for him, I think. It is. And considering they had the near miss while she was wearing a blue dress, and then almost he felt he should have confessed his feelings when she wore a blue shirt. I'm going to be on the lookout for her wearing blue again in the next mm-hmm. book. Yeah. She shows up in a blue something. I'm like, I'm watching you. <laughs> I'm yeah. I've got my eye out. But no, you're right. He really does like his love interest wearing blue. I sort of wonder if it's some kind of like primal territorial male thing. Like (laughs) the color blue is associated with strike, which it is. He is blue, Corman blue strike. Then it's kind of like the women in his life are wearing his color, like your football team colors, (laughs) kind of like marking his territory there but in a less gross way. But there is also, with Strike, there's a connection to the coast and the ocean for him emotionally and spiritually, and that's that's blue. Yeah, I think I'd be more likely to believe that it is just his favorite color. Yeah, that's also possible. <laughs> Imagining him <laughs> peeing on every, like, marking his territory. It's like... <laughs> no, like cats do it, like rubbing their face on stuff, which is much cuter. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> All right, go with the football colors metaphor then. That's much better. They're on his team. (laughs) Much less gross. But for this book specifically, 
-hmm. Obviously, Robin dyes her hair blue. Mm -hmm. Someone, and I'm sorry I don't know who it was because somebody else just told me about it, but I guess somebody on a Facebook group said that her blue hair was almost like protection when she was away from strike and i like this because it's it's like she's carrying a piece of him right since he is blue when they're apart and what's even more interesting to me is robin has to remove the blue from her hair in chapter 45 of the running grave it is the very next chapter chapter 46 where she starts pretending to speak to him to keep herself sane i mean i know it could be a coincidence but it feels to me like this idea from Facebook is correct that the blue hair was a stand-in, a piece of him that she had with her. And as soon as it was removed, she had to find another source of connection to him. Oh, Aww. I love that so much. The symbolism there, the cult stripping away her protector and mm-hmm. searching within herself for a part of him that they can't take away from her. Oh, wow. That's, mm, I love that person yeah. on Facebook. Ooh, we <laughs> yeah. don't know the identity of, but good job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. fabulous. And of course, she was rescued while wearing blue. Oh. And that's ripped. It's ripped when they reunite, right? There's something there, too. Well, at the last grasp of the cult trying to stop her from escaping with the barbed wire. But they can't because the true blue uh, has shown up now. So she doesn't need the symbol anymore. I don't know. Maybe it sounds like a ridiculous reach. But I think the overall thing here is that they're salt baits. I mean, the color mm. blue has connections in the book to romance and attraction, to the connection between them. It's tied to each of them personally with his name, all the blue in Robin's flat. Her eyes are blue. Yep. And I know some people have or will roll their eyes at me saying soulmates, but you can't tell me that that isn't what we're being told, especially with the I knew you were there part, right? Mm-hmm. That's a spiritual soul connection between these two that has no logical explanation. It's one of those unanswerable questions that strike thinks about in in 64. I think it's possible that all the blue is one way of showing that you know and for fun i went and googled some of the psychology and meanings of blue and one of the things it says is that blue can represent a spiritual connection and i don't know if that's what joe is intending i'd love to ask her but the person who asked this question i think is right that it is a reoccurring thing and it's really interesting Mm, it really is i went and looked up some of the other meanings commonly associated with blue and i think they also make a lot of sense for corman and robin because it's used to symbolize stability and reliability it's a calming and relaxing color Mm -hmm. apparently studies have shown that people are more productive and creative when they work in offices that are decorated in blue and for me corman is the home of all of those things for robin you know, stability, he's her rock. Relaxing, she loves being in his company. Productivity and creativity, that's what he provided for her space to explore her her vocation in that way. But a lot of those meanings are what Carmen craves too. He craves order, peace, work. And think of all of the phrases associated with blue. True blue, being unwaveringly loyal and faithful. Law enforcement officers often wear blue uniforms and have blue flashing lights in this book. Ties to justice. I realize I'm just throwing out random stuff here, but it all ties back together to Corman and Robin. And I I just realized a minute ago that Robin's name is tied to blue as well, although slightly less directly than Corman's because Robin's egg blue, Venetian blue, both oh, of her yeah. names are shades of blue they are both blue right they're both soulmate proof right there right when both of your names mean blue or literally is blue i think so and you know i also want to look at blue in the cases because there are some connections there i think lula's blue paper where she wrote her will 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's yeah. Blue Oyster Cult, mm-hmm. right? There's Kinvara's Blue Pill Bottle. The mm-hmm. Blue Notebooks that Kleptomaniac Strike stole from the army. Yes, the Blue <laughs> Notebooks, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there's any other Blue-related things to cases that I'm not thinking of. I'm sure that I'm there sure. might be. I mean, I know that when you're picking a color for something, it's not your options are limited, right? So maybe it's a coincidence, but I don't know. Maybe there's something bigger here too, like major case clues. If something is blue, it might be a big clue. Mm, there might be something there, or it might just be that there are so many colors. There's only so many colors you can pick. And blue is very common. I just yeah. want to point out that my water ball is blue and my mm. nails are blue oh, right now. I guess my shirt is blue. I'm blue. We weren't going to get through the episode without humming that song. No. Do you think Shrike ever sung that song? Because he literally is blue. It doesn't seem like his type of music. <laughs> I, yeah. don't know. I don't know if he would. I can't see him going to the club and dancing too. No, I can't see him in a club at all. Oh, well. Good excuse to sing the song, right? Get it stuck in everybody's head. Oh, You're all welcome. Blue is the color of Shrike's middle name. Blue <laughs> is his soulmate's eyes. They are so... I was trying to rhyme and I couldn't. I lost it. All right. So something interesting that I noticed while researching the color blue for this listener question is something said by an artist named Paul Cezanne, who is a French post-impressionist painter. He said, blue gives other colors their vibration. So one must bring a certain amount of blue into a painting. And fun fact, he used at least 16 different shades of blue in his paintings. But anyway, this quote just makes me think of how Strike, who obviously is blue in this case, brings out the best parts of Robin. So like the parts that have always been there, but maybe not as noticeable until the blue helps bring them out. And Robin is now, as we know, blue too with her name. She makes the best parts of him come out. Oh, but one interesting thing is that Cezanne and the post-impressionists, well, he was an influence on the Felvis movement which was the post-impressionism taken to its extreme in terms of representations of color and expressionism. And we do know that that's the kind of art that Robin likes. As we know. So mm-hmm. I connected the dots. You did. Well, now that we've thoroughly exhausted the color blue. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe we haven't. Maybe there's something else. Let us know what you I feel think. like we could go on for quite a, a <laughs> bit about every instance of blue in these novels. Send in your responses. Let us know what you think about blue. And with that. Yeah, with with that we can go on to the remainder of our last recording so these again are going to be chapters eight nine and ten yeah so let's get started with chapter eight yes in chapter eight strike meets up with wardle the epigraph for this one nine in the fifth place means it furthers one to make offerings and libations and that is from hexagram 47 oppression slash exhaustion And this is Strike taking Wardle out for food to get information out of him, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And Strike makes sure that it's a nice place. He's really buttering him up and it pays off. I like to think that Wardle would have helped Strike out either way, but it's a nice gesture and we see Wardle return the respect, if you will, later on. Mm -hmm. I also want to add to this that there's a paragraph or two before Strike goes to meet Wardle about how Strike spent three hours tracking down Angel's biological father for Shanker. It's another offering, so to speak, that comes back to benefit him later. I think the whole chapter is him doing things for other people that end up benefiting him in the long run. I'm also wondering if this hexagram speaks to the general situation of both Wardle and Strike, because both are facing adversity which is what this hexagram describes specifically they're facing love life adversity wardle with april leaving 
one of the lines in this hexagram actually says he enters his house and does not see his wife which you know Uh, i do know yeah and then there's strike with that smug prick murphy strike also entering his house and not seeing his wife which is very rude (laughs) It is rude. It is rude. But uh, the judgment did <laughs> Joe. Come on. <laughs> it. The judgment advises that the superior man bends to adversity rather than breaking, that he remains cheerful and strong within, that he acquiesces in his fate and remain true to himself. And I think that Strike is definitely taking this advice, at least by the end of the book, and he's making yeah. offerings. Is Wardle doing that too? Maybe we'll see more of whether or not he is. Maybe. In the future. So the chapter starts with Strike calling Robin on her day off to see if she wants to go with him to dinner with Wardle. I really like the contrast of him calling her on her day off like this with the earlier books, because there were a few times where he thought he'd better not do that. And it makes me think of their fight at Burger King in Silkworm, where he talks about what he'd need in a partner. And we're seeing that all happen here. I also love this because there's no real reason that Robin needs to be at that dinner. Wardle is Strike's friend. It's just an exchange of information. There's nothing he couldn't share with her later. I think he just wants an excuse to have dinner with her. And I'm guessing yeah. if she had gone, he'd have invited her to the pub after for drinks to discuss you of know, course. what was in the file. Yeah, obviously. he just wants to spend time with her. He just wants to eat curry with her. Yeah. Sadly, Robin tells him that she can't go because Murphy has tickets to the theater that night, but so she she makes sure to tell him that she's getting her hair cut so he knew that she was still working on the case on her day off. <laughs> you do not need to prove your commitment to the job to this man. He's probably only wondering what her hair is going to look like, you know? Yeah. Well, that and being grumpy over the theater. The idea <laughs> of Murphy buying theater tickets aggravated him. It suggested a dangerous degree of effort. Eight months into the relationship, the policeman should surely have stopped pretending he'd rather watch a play than have a decent meal followed by sex. This is funny to me because he's realizing that Murphy isn't just wanting something casual. And I think it's good that he finds these things out because it's only going to push him to do what he needs to do. Yes, it's good that he's starting to get a clue here that he's going to need to make some sort of move if he has any hope of anything happening with Robin. I guess he's not even considering that Murphy might genuinely like the theater. Maybe Murphy is was a drama minor. Maybe he really likes plays. I'm hoping that once Strike is with Robin, he'll have the revelation that sometimes in romantic relationships, one makes an effort to do things like this because it makes their partner happy and thus makes them happy. I mean, I'm sure he will because he already realized that at the end of Troubled Blood. It's like he hasn't made the connection. Like, why would a boyfriend buy theater tickets when he can just stop pretending and get food and sex? I see. I didn't see that as Strike not understanding that. I almost think it's the opposite. He understands it and he's not happy that Murphy is doing those things because it suggests that Murphy wants a real relationship with Robin. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, I see what you mean there. It's the dangerous part. It's dangerous because he's making yeah. an effort. Yeah. And of course, they also agree to go to Prudence's the next evening, which I was so excited about. So excited. What happens next interests me. After the ending of this book and Pat's sharp look at Strike, I am looking for things that might indicate Pat's suspicion about Strike and Robin. I'm just on the lookout, you know? So her listening or hearing part of the conversation made me wonder if she's paying more attention than she was before. Before. But I think it's probably more likely that this is just a way to introduce the Bigfoot case to us and have Pat say, why do you call him Bigfoot? But yeah. I love that they have a target nicknamed Bigfoot, as you know <laughs> that I would. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> they should name more of their targets 
after cryptids because i mean they're hunting for proof right they're trying to take <laughs> photos of an incredibly elusive creature yeah. got a huge list of cryptids they could choose from they could look for a mothman they could go after nessie i'm just imagining them putting it on like business cards we do adultery we do cold cases we do cryptids <laughs> so it says the man in question was a wealthy owner of a software company whose wife believed him to be visiting sex workers. If we're talking about finding a connection to the main case, which I like doing, I suppose you can make the argument that his use of sex workers could connect with the overall theme of sexual exploitation. I would indeed, yes. But for me, the bigger connection is the idea of Bigfoot. Because <laughs> you have this mythical creature that as much as I want it to be real, it probably isn't. Although I will admit the possibility. Mm -hmm. Even on my first read, I was connecting this with the manifestations that Kevin talked about, right? These ghostly sightings that he believed were real, but that we all knew it had to be the equivalent of someone in a Bigfoot suit, right? Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. And it's such a fun, interesting read of the nickname. I love it. That's <laughs> That's great. Well, I think it's possible because, you know, the other big side case we had are the Franks for Frankenstein. So we have oh, these sort of I creatures. I have so much to say about the Frankenstein nicknames, but I'm going to save it for okay. that episode. That'll be fun. Yeah, it's going to be good. Like I said at the epigraph, there's a few paragraphs where Strike is doing some work to find Angel's biological father for Shanker. And here's actually a response that we got from our listener question. And it's from Yorkie Knits. So they say, just wondering about Shanker and Angel. Why was that included, do you think? And why did Robin never find out that the little girl is Angel? I don't know why they didn't have an aha moment with these girls. Either we're meant to think that they already know or she's saving it for something else. I have been puzzling over this for ages because yeah. we never see any definitive proof that Strike knows it's Alyssa that Shanker's mm -hmm. living with or that Angel's the girl Robin saved in Career of Evil because he didn't recognize Zahara's name um, in Troubled Blood. Right. And I have to believe that if Robin knew it was Angel, she'd be much more involved and also wouldn't be calling her a little girl considering she's like 16 by oh now. Oh my gosh, is she really? Yeah. Which wow. is like mind blown time passing doesn't make any sense to me i have to believe that either there was a scene near the end wrapping up this plot that had to get cut for length or mm. that it's coming back in the next book i mean i hope that this is a setup me too maybe shanker and Alyssa really are going to get married and strike and robin will find out his real name and discover this at the wedding that would be great <laughs> oh my goodness i would much rather that we discover it in that context than shanker getting killed which is a really popular prediction yeah, yeah, I would like to see that wedding where right? Robin's like, wait, wait, what? Angel's the girl that you're, why didn't you tell me? He's like, I didn't know. How did you not know? That would be so funny. <laughs> it would be. Oh my God. I'd love to see it. Mm -hmm. I just realized I didn't really answer the question about why this subplot is included though. Obviously at one level, it's just a means to introduce Shanker early on and to have him owing strike a favor for later in the book. But I also think that it's echoing back to Troubled Blood where... Joan had ovarian cancer in Troubled Blood, and it, it was mm. fatal. Rokeby had prostate cancer, which was not actually serious and was used by Al to try and guilt and manipulate Strike. Mm -hmm. And then the murderer, Janice, was a cancer, yeah. astrologically speaking. So that's three. Here in The Running Grave, we've got Angel with leukemia, real, serious, could be fatal. We've got Charlotte with breast cancer, possibly fake definitely used for manipulation yeah and then we've got the uhc the big bad which is several times compared to a cancer 
that needs to be completely cut out or it'll come back. So there's these two sets of parallel threes tying the book together. Add this to the list of things you need to write about because that's, yeah, I really like that. I just noticed it. And it's like the cancer's infecting these books and mm-hmm. it's different forms. And I'm like, I've connected the dots. What does it mean? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. so I just realized that while we were typing up these notes and I'm like, oh my God, yeah. the cancer comes in threes. That's good. You might mm. need to put a pin in that and think on it some more because I really like that. Yeah. Okay. So next strike heads off to dinner with Wordle and they go to the cinnamon club. I'm kind of obsessing over this place a little bit and I definitely mm. want to go there. The menu looks great, but it's really just the books. I found pictures online and it looks so, it's so nice. Oh, I love the pictures. so nice. Yeah, I'm fully on board with you. We've moved to a place that has no good Indian restaurants and... <laughs> It's really been a heartbreaking struggle for but me. But books, but books, the wall is lined with books. I don't care what yeah, kind I'm of more, restaurant I'm it more, is. I'm more into the Indian food, but okay. the books are nice, but <laughs> I really want some good Indian food, to be honest. All right. Although, as a few people have pointed out online, the dishes that strike and wordle order aren't actually on the menu at the Cinnamon Club. And as I far as I can tell, too. yeah, they weren't on the menu in 2016 either. So... I wonder if they originally ate at a different curry house and Joe changed it for some reason, but didn't update the original orders. I wonder if someone knows of a place that serves both of those things. Yeah, someone got to do some detective work. Go to yeah, someone be a detective. To do research. Yep. Oh no, what a sacrifice. You might have to go to an upscale curry <laughs> house. Oh, no. Okay, so th- there's this next bit about Wordle. When they'd first met, Strike's friend Eric Wordle had been boyishly handsome. Though still good-looking, his once full head of hair was receding, and he looked as though he'd aged by more than the six years that had actually passed. Strike knew it wasn't only hard work that had etched those grooves around Wardle's mouth and eyes. He'd lost a brother, and his wife, April, had left him six months previously, taking their three-month-old baby with her. I need to know what he did. Right. Mm -hmm. Was it something specific or was she just tired of him in general? You know, because we've seen a sort of lack of respect for women from him. He's a bit of a flirt. I want to know the details. I do too, because I feel like it would take a lot for a woman with a three-month-old infant to leave her husband because at that point aren't you still incredibly vulnerable you're tied to this (laughs) tiny human you you're getting no sleep you're still physically you know pretty fucked up I do know um you're not back to work Mm, debatable well okay if you live in a civilized country that has proper mat leave (laughs) (laughs) but I am I am very very curious about what it was that happened there Mm -hmm. and why she left him I thought the exact same thing because yeah it would take a lot at that point um I mean we are jumping to conclusions Mm. maybe she left for another reason like she met someone else I don't know while she has a three-month-old infant where would she find the time maybe the baby is someone else's I don't know dun 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 (laughs) I don't actually think that I'm thinking he screwed up somehow yeah I was about to say I thought we were trying to avoid the pregnancy tinfoil theories well there's already a baby that's happened it's not too much of a tinfoil I don't think it's possible she met someone else (laughs) I don't know my whole point is to say he done fucked up right we're jumping to conclusions that it's his fault but I think it's a pretty safe conclusion yeah I think so too this is a response we got for the listener question from Louise Stokes the question asks about the evolution of Wardle does anyone else feel that he could end up being a really important character and maybe even leave the Met to join Strike and then someone responded to this comment saying you're onto something he has got something unrevealed on Murphy Like I said in our last episode, I do like Wardle better in this book than Mm -hmm. I have before. Mm -hmm. I think he's been humbled 
a bit mm. by April leaving. And this news, along with the knowledge that he's looking older, it kind of opened the door for me to feel sorry for him and give him another chance, you mm. know? Mm -hmm. And he didn't let me down because we could talk about him more in the later chapters, but he's he's much more likable to me now that he's not so full of himself and antagonistic with Strike and trying to be funny when he's not really, Yeah. You know? Yeah, I had the same impression as you. I suppose that people can change and grow. And yeah, maybe the stuff he's been through lately has shaken him up a little, made him reevaluate his behavior, grow up. Yeah. I would totally be here for him working as a subcontractor for Strike and Robin. Really, isn't he just too useful to them where he is? I don't know that Joe would change things up when he's their most used contact at the Met. Although if he did work for them, he'd bring a lot of contacts himself more than they have now, probably. Oh, you're right. He would. So there's an interesting idea. And yeah. they'd still have Vanessa. Intriguing. Yeah. I wonder how Wardle would react to being subordinate to Strike and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> It'd probably be pretty funny. I don't know. There's just something in here for me maybe about change and maybe the positive side of Strike making the changes that he does before he and Robin ever become more. I'm not saying that their relationship would necessarily end the same as Wardle's, but it's going to be a much happier one because mm -hmm. he's doing this work before, you know? Yeah. Okay. When Strike finally gets to asking Wardle for the census records from Chapman Farm, Wardle says that April went with a friend before to a UHC meeting and the friend joined. I remember being a little worried about this friend and wondered if they were going to come up later. Mm -hmm. I think I was worried that April would have told her friend, her husband's friends with Cormoran Strike, and that friend would therefore be aware of who Robin was because mm. they'd naturally be nosy and Google him like I would have done. Obviously. As one you does. know, so it came to nothing, but I was curious about this at that point. Because I was still worried about Robin's cover being blown, you know. I'm still wondering if we could have met the friend and not known it. Yeah, I wonder we but could like, have, I guess. We could have met April's friend. Anyway, Wardle war Wardle's oh god. Wardle's warning. Wardle's <laughs> warning of watch yourself. That's tough. Okay. Yeah. It felt ominous. He says, they've got a reputation for going hard after people who try and discredit them. It's kind of funny in hindsight that this really means messing with the Wikipedia page, <laughs> but we don't know that at this point. I, I feel like Wardle should really know that he's a character in a murder mystery, where we're definitely going to assume that going hard means going murderous. He's got to be more specific or he's going to give us anxiety. Well, maybe there <laughs> were rumors or possibilities going around that mm -hmm. no one could prove, but yeah. he was aware of because he's police, you know? Could and maybe we're all characters in a book that we don't realize we are. Oh my god. Do you ever admit that possibility? Um, then I have some questions and concerns for my author. So Wardle did bring the case file for Kevin's murder and they talk about it for almost the whole rest of the chapter. The things that stand out to me, the point that the gun used to kill Kevin was also used in two other drug-related shootings is very smart on Abigail's part to mm. use that gun. Yeah, I'm wondering if it was just a lucky coincidence because she found the gun and ammo in a burned out drug den and pocketed it huh. pocketed it pocketed it how many opportunities <laughs> like that could she feasibly have come across finding a gun and ammo and knowing that she could get away with stealing it probably not that many right do we know when she found it because i'm wondering if no. she found it kept it on her thinking this could come in useful or if she was thinking i need to find a way to kill kevin and then to saw this and thought that's what i'm gonna go for that would be lucky and she planted the drugs right because mm. at the end of the chapter strike notes that there were no drugs in kevin's system when he was killed i'm guessing she did and that is definitely pretty smart of her and i went ahead to the interview with abigail just to see if she mentions anything about this that we can connect here she does talk about drugs 
drug saying that the UHC got that bit right. I've dragged enough junkies out of shitholes. They set on fire by accident. I should know. Mm -hmm. So people paying close attention might have picked up on that, that she had access. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a clever clue. I don't think that a single reader of this book believed for a single second that this murder was actually about drugs because that's not the way books work. I get a bit of a cuckoo's calling callback vibe from the way this murder is being discussed here where they found marks consistent with gloved hands on the outer windows. No one saw a person leaving through the window, which makes me think of Tansy being out there. Mm. There's drugs being used as a way to dismiss what's really going on. The talk of CCTV. Wardle is there. Wardle is there. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) Sorry, I like that. I know it doesn't mean anything really, but when I was reading this, I just got this sudden sense of nostalgia for the very beginning of the series and it's making me want to do another reread. I don't know. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that's sweet. Let's get to the best part of this chapter though. Oh, and yeah. that's when Wardle asks if Robin is still dating Murphy. I don't know about you both, but I felt Wardle's warning was genuine. Like he genuinely wanted to tell Strike that he doesn't think Murphy's a good guy. And it kind of endeared me to him, although... That might be because I'm just obviously not a, a Murphy fan now, maybe. <laughs> so maybe I'm just ready to hop on Team Wardle now. <laughs> yeah. Do we think that Wardle's motives are to specifically let Strike know what's up so he can keep an eye out for Robin out of concern? Or is a more general, that guy, what an asshole kind of thing? If he just doesn't like him because he hit on April once, then he could just be venting. Mm-hmm. But if he knows more than he's saying, then it's possibly out of genuine concern. Mm-hmm. I need to know what he knows. But I mean, if he's saying that Murphy is a mean drunk and aggressive mm-hmm. and would hit on any any woman, to me, that does feel genuine, like a genuine warning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mean aggressive. Mm-hmm. Mean and aggressive are very concerning words for me. Yeah. I've got to say, when Wardle said this, I was instantly expecting Murphy to relapse and go off the rails at some point in this book i, I think was, we all were we all were i was actually super surprised that he didn't after this which I makes know. me wonder if she's saving that plot for book eight after the breakup after the breakup is yeah. super interesting yeah. that is an idea that i don't think i had considered no yeah it works for me because what better motivator for going off the rails than your girlfriend jumping you out of the blue after a year yeah <laughs> when you thought she loved you i'm with you i think it's possible there might be more about Murphy that Wardle knows and hasn't shared and I would be very interested to know what that is. I mean this meeting with Wardle is kind of full of warning isn't it? It super is. I mean we've got two choices about this warning. One it's a fake out to make us expect Mm -hmm. the drunk Murphy plot so that we're surprised when it doesn't happen and then there's the theme people can change or it's a setup for book eight where this warning is going to pay off big time. So the question is, which is it? Yeah, but there's also the warning about the UHC. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then I guess kind of as a whole, Wardle himself is serving as a warning An about warning. not changing. Yes. Mm. I was talking to my husband the other day about Murphy and about how Joe talked about Murphy in the Q&A because... When Joe speaks about him, it's all positives. She doesn't mention these things. She doesn't mention the cracks in the relationship, the jealousy, the reminders of Matthew, the possible mean, aggressive side of him, right? She speaks as if it's all good. So we were just talking about that. And I was saying that I think the most likely reason is that she's speaking in the most non-spoiler way she can, giving 
the perspective of first impression or how things are at the beginning of the book. That's typically how it seems to go. Yeah. But the other thing that I am now considering is that maybe these things are in the past for Murphy now that he's sober. Mm -hmm. And maybe the important thing that will happen in the next book is Robin simply following her heart, which is kind of what we were expecting in the first place. I don't know. I'm not fully committed to this because I do acknowledge that the red flags are there. And I think Joe is most likely just not giving things away. But I don't want to dismiss the value of Robin simply making the choice. Does that make sense? Like there's still Mm -hmm. the possibility for me that his character could go either way. I think the obvious answer here is to just combine the two. Robin follows her heart and makes the choice to leave. And then after that, all of Murphy's red flags start flying high to cause some post breakup juicy drama. Yeah. yeah. I really like this idea. Mm-hmm. It would scratch both itches, so exactly. to speak, of having yeah. Robin make the choice, but also give us the bad side of Murphy that keeps being hinted at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe we got Strike getting drawn into the drama and that's how he finds out they broke up because you know she's not telling him right away. Yeah. Yeah. Can we get that step forward strike? Oh, yeah. Oh, the sexy one where he takes a step forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I would enjoy that. Please. I really like this idea of pools. I think that there could be something yeah. Yeah. I, in I that. Like yeah. Too. I'm pretty invested in it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was already with it, but then when I thought of Strike taking Stepping that little forward. step forward, I'm, Suddenly I'm in. I'm 100%. To take out more space in the room. Yeah. Mm. I'm in it. I also feel like Joe knows exactly what she's doing when she doesn't give anything mm. negative about him. You know, yeah. she's, she. I think she knows the frenzy she's creating. It's like we're all sharks and she's just chummed the water with that yeah, answer. Pretty much. Oh my God. She totally knows that she's driving us nuts and she (laughs) loves every second of it all right let's go to chapter nine this is an amazing chapter why what happens so in chapter nine strike and robin visit prudence so the epigraph to chapter nine reads but in abolishing abuses one must not be too hasty this would turn out badly because the abuses have been in existence so long and that's from hexagram 36 darkening of the light I think that this is speaking to Prudence's warnings not to underestimate the UHC and its methods. Yeah, I agree. I think at this point, Strike and Robin are a bit naive to what they're really facing. Mm -hmm. The hexagram talks about a man of dark nature is in a position of authority and brings harm to the wise and able man. And that really feels like a warning about Jonathan Wace and the whole of the UHC to me. But I think the hexagram also talks about light overcoming the dark or good overcoming bad. In pretty much all the interpretations of this hexagram, it talks about hiding your light to keep it protected. And that really speaks to me about what Robin is about to do here. She is hiding her true self, hiding the fact that she's an actual superhero in disguise in Mm -hmm. order to free Will and the rest of the world from the darkness that is Waste and the UHC. I love that. That is spot on for me. I've got nothing to add except Robin is my superhero. Yes. Oh, Batman and Robin. No. Oh, oh my God. Okay. (laughs) But I love this chapter so much. When we first got the sample, I was reading this one on repeat. Same. We had been so excited to meet Prudence for so long. And then when we do, we get this absolute gift of a chapter with so much shippy content. It was Mm -hmm. gold. All the Prudence chapters were really good, weren't they? They were amazing. So Yes. More Prudence in book eight because everything she's in is fantastic. The chapter opens up by telling us about Robin's hair. And like I said earlier, I freaked out about nothing. The ends of her hair being dyed pale blue is not a big deal at all. I was worried that I was going to have a hard time picturing Robin with her hair like this because I've had such this clear image of her 
you know, for 10 years now, but I actually found it pretty easy. And in my head, she looks super cute. Clearly everyone else agrees because she's got at least three people telling her it looks great in this chapter. And one of them is a youth. So a youth, the youths know <laughs> what looks good. I don't think that it's her, mm. you know, so I'm happy that it's mostly back to normal, but I'm also filing this away as more proof that Robin's favorite color is blue. Oh yeah. I think at this point we can pretty much call it canon. I mean, the hair dye, the paintings in her flat, the pots. Most definitely the pot. Most definitely her favorite. You know what I was kind of sad about? And this is a very small thing, but I really wanted to know what Strike actually thought about her hair. The fact that we don't get him thinking about it makes me think that maybe he prefers her normal hair. Yeah, I think you're probably right that he prefers it normal. I mean, because that's the Robin he fell in love with. But I think he can objectively say, yeah, that looks really good on you, mixed with admiration for her commitment and her skill at adopting undercover personas. I could also see Strike not being into unconventional hair colors for mm. some reason. Coco-related PTSD? <laughs> I don't know if that's what it is. No. I just, part of me sees him as kind of a conventional guy in some ways, I think. He is. So then it mentions that the play that Robin saw with Murphy was called The Father, and it was at the Duke of York Theater. Obviously, this is real. I looked it up. Mm -hmm. The show ran from February 24th, 2016 to March 26th, 2016. Um, and it's about an 80-year-old man who is becoming forgetful. And my guess is that when Joe was looking up what was playing during this time she maybe chose this one because it connects a bit to the ted storyline that's coming up oh yes absolutely she did also the plot of this play sounds absolutely heartbreaking and really good it's presented through the eyes of the father who has dementia and it's designed to make the viewer feel the same sense of confusion and fear like they keep switching up mm. the sets and the actors and you don't know what's going on oh yeah i really wish we got to hear whether robin liked it or not it seems like a bit of a depressing choice for a date it's not yeah, what really i would does. choose for a romantic night out to be honest no is the lion king not on or something like even yeah. Les Mis is more cheerful Wicked is always there or yes oh, Wicked that would be my my there. personal choice I think we know that but the exchange between Strike and Robin about Bigfoot where Strike is complaining that the man doesn't comb his hair or appear to shower is is really great for me I liked this part besides mm -hmm. it being funny I think it's a nice bit of consistency that we get in Strike's character seeing how much he despises scruffiness and knowing that it comes from bits of his childhood that are going to be dug up in this book. I don't know. I just really like these kinds of things because it's been set up since the beginning as part of his personality. You're right. It's such a good bit of characterization because it subverts all of the, you know, slobbish noir detective tropes. But it makes so much sense with not only his military background, but his deeper formative experiences. It kind of takes me back to Cuckoo's Calling again, where we see him homeless mm -hmm. and where he does things to try and overcome that, like showering at where does he shower i believe that he went to the university of london student union building so ulu but that or when it says you know that his shirt is wrinkled but he tries to pretend like he's too busy for ironing you mm -hmm. know does that make sense yeah i don't know the thing you said pulls about this book feeling like a new beginning it's sticking with me and taking me back to the actual beginning uh well now i've got at the beginning from anastasia stuck in my head oh so thanks i have never seen anastasia <gasps> what dude it's such a good what? movie it's perfect what? How have you not seen Anastasia? Okay, this is... Yeah, I haven't seen this it. Is, you should watch it. Absolutely this is insane. should watch it. <laughs> I can't believe this. Okay, well, now I've got to go rewatch Anastasia to apologize to it for you not having seen it. <laughs> so good. <laughs> 
but yes, I totally see what you mean. There are so many callbacks and reflections on the past in this book that we can't help but think of how far Strike and Robin have come together. Like in this song from the movie you haven't seen. <laughs> but I also love, going back to the book, his distinction of in people who can help it. He doesn't yeah. like scruffiness in people who can help it. It immediately made me think of Billy Knight and Strike's kindness towards him. Yeah. And, he, and he's yeah. careful to say, he's very careful to say that. It makes me think of his, his judginess of Flick for not cleaning her eye gook. Yeah, well, that that which always gross. made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. the difference between the two of them. Flick can help it. And chooses yeah. to eyeliner over it. The next bit made me feel a tiny bit sad because it says that Robin feels a little intimidated when they pull up to Prudence's home and it makes her think of her own flimsily built flat in which she had to endure the almost constant noise of the music from the man upstairs. I remember feeling slightly deflated at this because I had been so happy in Ink Black Heart when Robin purchased her flat. It's one of my favorite things about Ink Black Heart. And I just, I want her to be happy there. Yeah. I guess that once the novelty of independence and owning her own space wore off, the drawbacks of apartment living <laughs> reared their annoying and noisy heads. But I'm sure she's still happy in general because she mentions later in the book that her own flat is dear to her for the independence it gives her right yeah that's true but maybe this little tidbit that she's not perfectly happy there will come back in a good way when she finds another place possibly with someone she really wants to share a space with you know mm, who could that be i don't know it's a mysterious person but anyway let's get to prudence because right. i'm so excited to yes. meet her. oh my goodness it's been so worth the wait yeah the description of her figure through robin's eyes is kind of funny it takes me right back to strike saying you're about the same you know mm -hmm. <laughs> it just made me smile when i remembered that and i think it also gives us a little more details about robin's figure as well i like that little sense of relief that robin has that she and prudence have a similar figure it's just really sweet i I mean, if she was trying to try on Madeline's clothes, mm -hmm. yeah, I'd be it's not going to fit in the upper area because mm -hmm. it's Robin to Madeline zero. Exactly. But anyway, <laughs> Robin explains her hair away, right? And it was kind of cute. I just mm -hmm. really relate to that need that she had to kind of explain it away and explain it's not normally like this. Mm -hmm. Years ago, my little cousin was having a rainbow birthday party. I think she was like four or something. And my cousin, her mom had blue hair at the time. So I went and got like non-permanent dye that was like pinkish burgundy and when my dad noticed it i did exactly the same thing i was like it's not permanent it's gonna wash out <laughs> but why like i had to make sure that it's just for the party it's just for fun oh. i don't know but i felt that i felt robin in this moment it was very real to me i guess she wants to make a good impression on prudence which is really sweet of her and i guess she feels it that is. blue hair does not make the impression she wants to make <laughs> i guess it is sweet yeah. i'm also just thinking that maybe robin isn't the unconventional hair color type either so she felt the need to explain yeah i guess I'm, that's where yeah. i was coming from too i mean yet another way in which strike and robin are perfect for each other obviously they will just sit quietly with their natural hair colors and, and sip their tea <laughs> and all of the weirdos walking by with blue hair. No, I, they're not judgy of other people, but yeah. No, no, I don't think it's so. I just don't them. think it's them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I love seeing Prudence just hug Strike Hello. Okay. Right. It shows a real developing bond that they're in a we hug hello place, mm -hmm. yeah. you know. I noticed that Prue calls Strike bruv, just like Al does, which feels so out of place when we hear how she normally speaks, which is much more very upper class educated, whereas bruv is like Cockney. The only other person who uses bruv is Shanker and Jordan Rooney, I think. So it stood out to me as a bit weird, like maybe it's some kind of in-joke between them that she calls him bruv. 
Like they're teasing Al or something? Well, separate from Al. Hmm. A rising is a joke because she's so posh somehow. And it's just a oh. coincidence that it's what Al says. This didn't stand out to me at all. But no? I, I don't really know about no, how people speak. Maybe yeah. we need to ask an English friend <laughs> what they think. Yeah, that would I wouldn't be great. Because right? Bruv to me was a shanker and then Al hmm. awkwardly trying to be relatable thing. Yeah, that stood out to me too. Oh, thanks, Ken. So I'm not crazy. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I immediately thought of Al and I was like, hmm. So once they go inside, the UHC is brought up pretty quickly because Prudence is able to guess it. Mm -hmm. This was a fun back and forth between Strike and Prudence where they both guess at what the other can't say. It's really fun. Two very clever siblings here. It's interesting to me that both of Strike's sisters had connections to this case in some way when we've never seen a family connection before. Perhaps it's a symbol of Strike being more ready to integrate all aspects of his life into a satisfying whole rather than to compartmentalize and ignore his family as much as possible. Yeah, and it works well with Lucy's surprise in a couple chapters that he wants to talk to her about the case, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Mm -hmm. I like that observation. Seeing them face to face, Robin spotted her partner's resemblance to Johnny Rokeby for the first time. He and his half-sister shared the same defined jaw, the same spacing of the eyes. She wondered... She, who had three brothers, all of the same parentage, what it felt like to make a first acquaintance with a blood relative in your 40s. But there was something more than a faint physical resemblance between brother and sister. They appeared, already, to have established an unspoken understanding. I really like this line. First, I just, I like the idea of Robin kind of studying his features like this. <laughs> can she t- you know? can she tell us more things she notices about his features? I know. I also like that it seems to rule out that one theory out there somewhere that Ted is actually Strike's father. I'm just saying I never believed it, but it's nice to get to rule one out, you know? Mm-hmm. It sure is. And speaking of ruling things out, I know it's not mm-hmm. relevant to these chapters, but it's been driving me crazy. Can I please rule out the... Bijou's baby is actually strikes theory. Oh, please. It's been all over the place and it's driving me nuts. So listen, Bijou and Strikes sleep together in late March. She mm-hmm. tells him she just found out she was pregnant in mid-July. If it was Strikes, she would be 18 to 20 weeks along. She'd be it's showing. Halfway. She's clearly not. It's not Strikes' baby. Okay, the timeline doesn't work. She wouldn't have just found out when you're 20 weeks pregnant. No, she wouldn't have just found out. And even if she was lying about that, you he would have been able to see that she was pregnant. Right. Quite slim. It does seem really easy to rule that out with some simple counting. Yes. Right? Yeah. I don't get the desire to run with these kind of wild theories that seem so unlikely or unrealistic. I just, the timeline doesn't check out. It's not right. happening. Yeah. We can all stop being anxious and worried about it. I've never been in anxious my and worried about it. Mm-hmm. I Other people have been anxious <laughs> and worried about it. And I just wanted to oh, set boy. out the timeline so that everyone can reassure themselves that this is not happening. Thank you for attending my TED Talk. <laughs> I have to say, I'm a little bummed that we are in for another year of the weird pregnancy theories. I thought we could move on from that. Yes, thank you for your service, schools. (laughs) Anyway, back to this. Robin seeing the dynamic between Strike and Prudence is also really nice. I feel like she and us get to see this other side of him through this new relationship that he's been developing since the last time we saw him. This kind of understanding between them hints at part of that change in him where he is investing more into his relationships 
Mm. I'll never forget something a family friend once said to me. She said that people are like banks and you have to invest in them to get anything back. And I feel like this is the first book where we really see Strike investing in his relationships, particularly with the women in his life. So Robin, Mm. Prudence, Lucy. So until now, Strike's been doing the emotional equivalent of uh, hoarding his money in a sock under the mattress because (laughs) of paranoia that the bank's going to swindle him. But now he's realized that if something happens to his mattress, then he's fucked. Uh, And also that banks can be very useful and safe if you pick a good bank. And now he's out here getting compound interest and growing wealth. (laughs) Good for him. I like this metaphor. I will be keeping this in the brain bank. That's good. Yeah. So when Prudence starts explaining about her client, my fear for Robin grew and then even more a little later on when Prudence starts explaining that just being clever isn't protection on its own. Mm -hmm. And it's such a good point that she makes because she's right. Cults don't hook a person through their intellect or their lack Mm -hmm. thereof. They target people's emotions. That is their way in. And I think that we all know some very, very smart people who are very, very dumb when it comes to emotions. I can think of two. But the intellect is not the way in, so it doesn't matter how smart you are. Here's a question, though. Did Robin even read the books that Prudence let her borrow? Because we see Strike reading them, but it never says that Robin does, and she never thinks about them later. Are we supposed to assume that she did or that she didn't? I have to assume that she did. How could she not? Right. What I figured was that she and Strike each took one and then swapped them when they were done and we just didn't Mm. hear about it. That's my head. I would hope so. Yeah. Joe actually talked about this book a little on Twitter in September. Mm -hmm. She was responding to Bill and said, I've actually always been interested in cults and the UHC isn't really based on anyone in particular. However, you're right in thinking I've read Stephen Hassan's book. I deliberately mentioned it in the novel along with Robert J. Lifton's book on totalitarianism because they're excellent resources for anyone worried about somebody who's been recruited or indoctrinated and anyone looking to understand how they got drawn into a cult themselves. I love this thread because I read Combating Mind Control and it was excellent. I'm going to need to do a quick skim of it to refresh my memory for when we get to the farm chapters and I'll Mm. have to tackle that Lifton book too. I mean, as a serious and professional podcaster, yeah, I really feel like (laughs) we have to do this important research, which is Mm. the same attitude I take to considering the logistics of semen heists and the (laughs) physics of wall sex in regards to prosthetic legs. We cover all our bases with our research, Mm -hmm. uh, striking Ellicott files. I mean, I should add these books to my list of books to read. I don't know how one prepares for the other things. Well, I've got to say that my research practices are extensive and secret. Okay. I can't share. Pools, the semen heist expert. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get to the part that caused a lot of screaming from us online when Robin tells Prudence that it's nice of her to do this for them. It isn't, said Prudence, now smiling again. I've been dying to meet you, given that you're clearly the most important person in Quorum's life. The words gave Robin a sensation like an electric shock in the pit of her stomach. He's, he's really important to me too. (sighs) Okay. I need to know how Prudence came to this very correct conclusion. Is it just that he talks about her all the time? Does she suspect anything? What does he say? I need to know. I need the reasons. I need to know. I mean, she has to suspect, right? The most important person. His main woman. She knows. Can we talk about both Prudence's kids? right here. I know we meet the son a little later, but let me just put them together. I love that they both call Strike new uncle. Mm-hmm. I just found the whole exchange with them endearing. I yeah. liked them mm-hmm. a that lot. That was really cute. I love that Sylvie complimented Robin's hair. It seems to me like 
Prudence has raised two polite and social teenagers. I also really liked when the son came home and got a little embarrassed when Strike introduced Robin. Oh. I'd be willing to bet that he thought Robin was pretty and didn't know how to talk to her. Yeah, definitely. I love this line when Prudence says, quite exciting, really, helping someone go undercover. Corb's very cagey about what you two get up to. Professionally, I mean. <laughs> the fact that she felt the need to add that in tells me, yeah, she probably suspects something. I definitely need to know what he's told her about the things they get up to unprofessionally. Not that there are that many, but is he more cagey or less cagey? I gotta know. I think we're all just desperate. <sighs> to hear yeah. how he talks about Robin. Mm -hmm. I'm realizing just how badly I want Strike to talk to someone about her in the next book. Yes. Anyone. Mm -hmm. yes. I just want him to tell someone that he loves Robin and ask her advice. I don't care if it's Ilsa, Prudence, Lucy, Pat, Barkley, Ted, just someone. Oh, just yes. someone. Seconded. Ilsa might be the best person because she knows both of them. Ilsa but she also amazing. has opinions. Prudence <laughs> would be great. Yeah, Prudence would Ted be really would good too. would give great advice. Barclay would at least be funny about it. Pat would be amazing. Any or all of them. Can all of them get together in a room and hold an intervention? I think they need to. At that this would point. be ideal for me. Was I the only one hoping that Robin would come out and show them the clothes? Which is ridiculous because of <laughs> course she wouldn't do that. Why would she do that? But I was just thinking back to Kuka's Calling and her trying on clothes at Vashti. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, was, I was like, fashion show, fashion show, fashion show at lunch. Sorry, the office. Yeah, no, I, I too would like to see her model them for him. But I mean, it might be a bit weird for Strike having to look at her being very sexy in his sister's clothes. Sure. But I, I love the cuckoo's calling parallel that you've pointed out. And Robin gets expensive clothes as a gift that were originally for the case. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, there you go. I think that this question that Prudence asks Strike here, surely you can see the allure of discovering a profound truth, the key to the universe, fits really, really beautifully with Strike's thoughts in chapter 64, where he thinks... Some mysteries were eternal and unresolvable by man, and there was relief in accepting that, in admitting it. Death, love, the endless complexity of human beings, only a fool would claim to fully understand any of them. It's just so powerful to me that when Prince asks this question of Strike here at the beginning, Strike, the man whose entire life is about discovering the truth, he half shrugs. And then later in this profound moment of personal revelation and growth, he answers that question to himself with, it's impossible. He surrenders his lifelong drive to find out the truth of something bigger than himself. And then he finds his own personal truth in that. And I just, I really mm. like how this idea about a profound truth comes back. Comes back. Yeah. Yeah. I love any reference to that chapter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so beautiful. It's so good. And then, you know, of course, Prudence saying that Robin seems lovely and Strike saying she is while glancing up at the ceiling as if he's looking at her. It's that he's wishing he had x-ray vision. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, she is lovely. She, she is. is. Okay, so Prudence gives Robin the clothes instead of letting her borrow them. I love when she says that it would be the first time any of us have been allowed to give Corm anything, even by proxy. And I'm assuming she means the Rokeby siblings. Yeah, I'm assuming she does. Although we haven't really seen any of them other than Al make an effort. Since when right. has Al tried to give Strike anything? Maybe there are interactions we don't know about. Probably. But I love that this implies that Corman and Robin are basically the same person. There is a sense of oneness, isn't mm -hmm. there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're a team. And, and it's how everyone in their lives sees everyone. them. They're like, oh, They all see them that way. Giving a yeah. present to Robin is giving a present to Carmen. It counts. So we get more talk of Rokeby between Robin and Prudence, which again, it makes me 
hopeful that we'll get to meet him soon. And here Prudence is giving a really honest opinion of him while she's fond of him. He's juvenile. He's almost all about instant gratification. I just thought it was a really nice compliment when she said that Strike and Rokeby, you could hardly imagine two more different people. I feel like she really respects Strike and I loved seeing that very honest portrayal of who Rokeby is. Yeah, it makes me even more eager to get a Strike Rokeby meeting this setting them up as complete opposites because it would be yeah it would be an interesting study in contrasts i want to see how they'd interact and i want to witness the absolute train wreck because it would be hilarious i'd be really curious to know what prudence thinks about any kind of potential relationship between strike and rugby i think she might be the person with the best insight on how that might go she's a psychologist she understands yeah. people and she has a relationship with both of them. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. While also understanding where Shrike is coming from, which I think is the difference between her and Al. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me to hear Prudence say that Rokeby has a genuinely guilty conscience about Shrike and knows that he behaved very badly because I think Prudence is someone whose judgment we can trust. So it tells me that that's probably true. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it is. Is it possible for Rokeby to ever understand just how much his absence hurt? Carmen as a child does he have the emotional capacity to understand that because I think that strike as a person has a natural capacity to feel very very deeply I think he's actually quite sensitive even if he closes it off with his little hard shell and I don't know if Rokeby can even comprehend that because he doesn't have that depth he doesn't have that sensitivity himself from what we know of him probably not Mm. but if there ever is any form of reconciliation I suspect that forgiveness from Strike will be more for himself than for Rokeby and now with Prudence in his life he'll have more of a balanced idea of what to expect out of a relationship with him yeah Rokeby's never going to be Ted Mm -hmm. you know but there's still some hope for something there for me that could be good for strike and healing for him yeah let's talk about the line when robin says i'm really glad you and cormoran are in touch i think you might be i don't know what he's missing what do we think about this because on the one hand i totally get what robin is saying i agree that this is a wonderful thing that he's connected with prudence but on the other hand i want to tell robin you're what he's missing robin mm-hmm. <laughs> right like robin take a look in the mirror i don't fully know my thoughts on this someone talk yeah, me through it like I don't, I don't know i mean i guess robin is is talking about that other half of his blood his genetic heritage it's half of himself in his history that he's been pushing away and denying for his whole life prudence is that part of him but she unlike al also has some insight into his feelings about being illegitimate, about being an outsider, about the complications. And they click enough personality-wise for Prudence to be a bridge for Strike to come to terms with his feelings about his father and his his childhood and try to move on from that hurt and maybe see himself and both sides of his past as a cohesive whole, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. I guess I'm just curious what Robin, what does she think is missing from his life? I don't know. It's possible too that this is setting us up for Robin taking charge with Prudence later on. But part of this feels a little unfinished to me. I recognize it's probably because I want Robin to understand that she is also something that's missing in his life. But yeah, it could also be setting us up for a 
a rugby meeting that uh, there's something that is missing, yeah. you know, that he needs to heal also. I think it is. I think we're getting one. And it just really endeared me to Prudence when she told Robin that she had wanted to meet Strike for years and basically admired him for making his own way for so long. This was, in addition to being very sweet, an amazing contrast with Al. Because remember when he had that whole crisis in Silkworm sitting across the dinner table from Strike? Yeah. When Strike's independence just made him feel bad about himself he took it and made it all about him with al there was hero worship there and it was combined with a really guilty self-awareness that was uncomfortable but prudence is coming from a much more emotionally mature and intelligent place she has that same admiration for him but she understands and handles it so much better and the way she talks about him he's been kind of a talisman to me for a long time just the idea of him when i read this it took me back to those first text messages in troubled blood i bet she was so nervous reaching out to him, worried that she'd mess it up forever if she pushed too hard. Oh, that's really cute because now I'm picturing her agonizing over yes. composing those messages. Exactly. Oh. Me too. Okay. That's really sweet. Yeah. I just find it so endearing because he's meant something to her even back then when she's sending those texts and she didn't even know him knowing how badly she wanted to meet him. I think it's very sweet. It's incredibly sweet. Yeah. yeah. That's great. This last bit of the chapter is probably my favorite part, right? Wow. Strike looking at the crime scene photo from Kevin's murder with a magnifying glass and Robin laughing, calling him Sherlock. It's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Uh, I know she didn't call him his usual nickname of, of Sherlock Bigcock. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think she knows about that. Shame. It's I a can't pity. believe Barkley hasn't let her in on that. <laughs> but also just the way, you know, obviously they're getting closer and closer on the couch, thighs almost touching, hair touching, more electric shocks from Robin. It's literally like getting secondhand butterflies when oh, I read this part. Yeah, I love it so it much. Before this book, I desperately wanted more of Robin's physical attraction to strike. And with this chapter we all did we were fed we mm -hmm. were fed i genuinely do not comprehend how robin can continue pretending to herself that she's not in love with him when she's over here conscious of his thighs and getting electric shocks from his hair i don't i understand. know it's gonna be even worse or better i guess in the next book yep can't wait. Well, let's talk about what's written on kevin's wall and how right. it relates to dai's murder so we have five prophets mm -hmm. becca mm -hmm. sin yep. straw S-T-R-A, plot, the night before, and pigs. 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 Mm. It's also important that Abigail, she took out a piece of the wall before the word pigs. Up until now, I'd assumed that Kevin had written something like they chopped her up and fed her to the right before mm. that pigs. But he couldn't have enough details to write that, right? What was it that he pieced together about the pigs? I don't know. I don't know either. This is the part of the mystery that's hard. It's hard to put all these pieces together. So mm. for this part, if anyone finds yeah. things that we don't, please send them in to us and let us know. Because I know that we'll find them as we go. But mm -hmm. right now at the beginning, I'm like, how does it all... Would have been nice if after Barclay had gotten the laptop that Abigail stole, if we'd gotten to read a bit of what he'd figured right? out, you know. Becca's name tells me, or should have told me, that Becca was going to be more important to Daya's disappearance than I think I actually thought. Yeah, should have told us. Yeah, it also works as kind of a red herring too to make us think that maybe she's actually Daya, which was thrown in there as well. Yeah. I don't remember what sin is for. 
don't either unless it's more like a general they sinned there were sins kind of thing you really talk about big on the whole sin yeah they don't talk about sinning no that's a mystery straw is a biggie yes they even talk about do they mean straw s-t-r-a-w but i was thinking of a straw you drink from i didn't even think of straw yeah you know but i should have remembered this when they started making straw figures (laughs) let's face it let's not beat ourselves up for this we're never gonna remember this shit (laughs) No, no one is. Okay, what do you think plot is? So I assume that Kevin had pieced together that there was sort of plotting taking place. Like Mm. Abigail was plotting with Carrie and Jordan to kill Dayu. It it was a nefarious plot. Yeah, then there's the night before. Yes, which is definitely referring to the night before Dayu supposedly died, right? I think so. Yeah, Yeah, when Becca saw Carrie passing her out the window. And then pigs. Obviously, we know that they fed Dayu to the pigs. But the question is, did Kevin know this? Kevin figure this out? Or was he talking about the pig demons he saw and saying like the pigs were the ones who did it? Maybe Kevin pieced it together or maybe they're just clues for the reader. Yeah. And again, if there's anything that we miss on this, I'm sure that there is. Please let us know because it's tricky picking all of the little clues when we're still at the beginning, even though we've already read this more than a few times at this point. (laughs) (laughs) It's just how it goes. But we'll get there. We'll figure it out. We're not perfect. We're not pure spirit yet. Maybe by the end of this book, we will be. We'll see. (laughs) Okay, let's go to chapter 10. So chapter 10, Robin attends a UHC meeting in Rupert Court. And the epigraph, six in the second place means contemplation through the crack of the door, furthering for the perseverance of a woman. And that's hexagram 20, contemplation. Pretty appropriate for the chapter when Robin gets her first glimpse into what the UHC is about, isn't it? I am actually going to go to the Q&As for this one because in the question, what inspired you to explore the theme of religious cults in the running grave? Joe says, none of us can say for sure there is nothing beyond, but by saying, I admit the possibility, the cult leader cleverly opens the door one inch and people want to come back. So really, I think Joe herself is explaining this epigraph perfectly. Contemplation through the crack of the door, we see Jonathan Wace get these people to just open the door a tiny bit. And sometimes that's all it takes. Mm. And it's kind of funny how, Pools, you talked about how these epigraphs are flipping the patriarchal tone of the Book of Changes. Because this one is a bit much. Yep. But you're right, Because this crack in the door furthering for the perseverance of a woman is not in the way, the I Ching says, but it's how this woman takes them down. It's instead giving Robin the power and it's almost like the UHC is the one who opens the door to her. I don't know if this is all nonsense. No, no, this is not nonsense. This is beautiful. I agree. There was a part of this judgment that really stood out to me. It said in the I Ching... All of this points to the power possessed by a superior personality. On the one hand, such a man will have a view of the real sentiments of the great mass of humanity and therefore cannot be deceived. On the other, he will impress the people so profoundly by his mere existence and by the impact of his personality that they will be swayed by him as the grass by the wind. I mean, is that not waste in this book? But this hexagram is all about seeing and being seen. And he has not counted on being seen by someone as brilliant, as badass, as resourceful, Mm -hmm. and as fierce as our Robin, has he? Yeah. Like you said, there is a crack in this door that he's opened, and Robin is insinuating herself through it to demolish him. 
to burn him to the ground. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Mm, it's great. You shouldn't have put yourself out there to be seen so much waste. You done fucked up and now you're going to find out. Okay. So we start the chapter seeing that Strike is a little bit more worried about Robin after their talk with Prudence. And he wants to make sure that they have a solid backstory for Rowena Ellis. And what do you make of her name? Well, I'm guessing she wanted something that started with the row sound right. so that it felt familiar to her. Also, Rowena sounds like a suitably rich people name their kids yeah. weird shit, you know, for the strike universe, <laughs> right? I mean, it's no Shahrazad, but it's pretty good. <laughs> I forgot about Shahrazad. I'll never forget about Shahrazad. Uh, I can't. It's I need to so go reread ridiculous. the rich chapter. Shahrazad. Okay. But the name Rowena mm. is very strongly associated with the character from Ivanhoe, which I must shamefully admit I have not read. Okay. So my research was more concerned with the semen heists. I've spent too much time on that <laughs> and too little time reading the classic <laughs> literature. I'm sorry. Right, right. I apologize. But it's not just her first name too. The Ellis is Ellicott. Ellis right. and Ellicott. Yeah. It's the Roel. Roel. Also sounds like a fancy name. It Roel. Does. Roel. Actually, it's quite nice. But I, I mean, we have to mention the fact that J.K. Rowling has used the name Rowena before, right? Yeah. Is is Robin a Ravenclaw? Is that where mm. we're going with this? <laughs> I mean, Robin is totally Ravenclaw, though. I've believed this for a long time. I was looking for links between Rowena Ravenclaw and Robin Rowena, and I came up pretty dry. Maybe Joe just yeah. likes the name and it's a little Harry Potter Easter egg. But having Possibly. said that... Is there some connection to be made between the fact that the Bloody Baron hid Rowena's diadem in a hollow tree and the hatchet that chopped up Dayu was hidden in a hollow tree? Is that something? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So I found this short conversation between them very sweet where he's trying to go over every detail and Robin is half annoyed, half amused saying, I know it's just cute. It's so them. But what's even better for me is that they spend the whole Friday night with Strike quizzing her and she's in character. It's the best part for me that she doesn't just give him her answer. It says, I'm not committing to anything, of course, she added with a convincing show of nerves. I'm only here to have a look. Aww. It's like they're practicing reading a script together, you know? Is, like she is in character. Yeah. It reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from the TV show where she's going undercover as Bobby Cunliffe and he's like, favorite album, favorite song on that mm -hmm. album. Oh my That's God. That's exactly what this is. And the yeah. look in his face where he's clearly very attracted to her whole Bobby Cunliffe yeah. thing. Yeah, I'm getting those vibes too. Yeah. They're great. Okay, so then, I mean, we see Robin heading down to Rupert Court and when she gets close enough, she sees the gold carvings on the door with a horse, a cow, a rooster, a pig, a pheasant, a dog, a sheep, and a dragon. Mm -hmm. We talked about these things before the book came out because of Joe's most recent header, but it didn't really turn out to be as heavily featured as we were thinking, right? I think the biggest significance is that Mazu is interested in Chinese culture. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Although the pig obviously becomes an animal of incredible right. importance, um, as well as the dragon, right. the dragon field where they buried the bodies. So it's kind of like two big clues buried in a bunch of red herrings. Yeah. <laughs> Which are also animals because they're fish. So that's <laughs> funny. Just like communism. It's just like communism. Mm -hmm. If anybody gets that joke, please tell me so that we could be best friends. Okay. <laughs> is this a clue Communism thing? is just a red herring. It is it a clue is a thing. Clue thing. <laughs> I should have known. No time to watch Anastasia, but time to watch Clue five million times. 
Anyway, that's funny. Okay, so Robin goes inside and I really obviously I really want to talk about the reference to It's a Small World because I am a massive Disney fan. It says that Robin sees figures around the walls that remind her of paper dolls all holding hands, all different ethnicities, and it reminds her of the ride at Disneyland. There are a few Disney references in this book that obviously made me so happy. At this point, I've had different conversations about this, but my first was with a woman named Chris who sent us an email about it shortly after we finished this book. And in our discussion, she said that she thinks this is a clue to the pepper ghost illusion because it is used on a lot of Disney rides. I know, at least for here in California, it's used in Haunted Mansion. The one that's most impressive for me is the Blue Fairy at the end of the Pinocchio ride. You can just go on YouTube and type in Pinocchio ride to see it. It's almost at the very end of the ride. You'll see the Blue Fairy appear and disappear, but she's completely transparent. And I just, I love this so much because having seen this in person so many times, I've always wondered how they did it. Never thought to look it up. Every time we go on that ride, I'm always like, how does the blue fairy appear and disappear with the magic twinkling sounds? You know, it's just, it was so exciting to me, this whole thing. I am so glad that this book solved this tiny personal mystery for you. I'm also very glad that you didn't take your confusion about the effect and decide that it was spirits manifesting from the other side. Well, Disney magic is quite real, but you know. Okay. It really did solve a mystery for me, though. I'm glad. Like I said, I could have Googled it, but I never did. Well, you know what? Clearly, neither Kevin nor Flora thought to Google it either. (laughs) So you're in great company. Yeah. I think it also just speaks to the overall kind of illusion of magic that the UHC has because even at 38 Disneyland still feels very magical to me but I know it's all done with these kinds of tricks and technology so it really paints a picture for me of how exactly things look at the UHC I can see it I get it it's great well I am cheering you on for this thank you Robin going to Disney Paris with Matthew can you even imagine Strike going to Disney with Robin? I'm dying <laughs> laughing just imagining his grumpy face at the crowds oh, and the prices pair of and ears. the heat and the walking and the ears and the Don't music. Make me think about Strike with mouse ears. It's adorable. <laughs> it's probably too much walking for him, even on yeah. a good day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there is a lot of good food. So in my I'm taking Strike to Disneyland with me fantasy, he might enjoy some of it. I'll buy him a big turkey leg and a churro. Everybody loves a churro. Who doesn't love a churro? You're not going to go to someone and say, hey, hey you want a churro? And they're like, hell no, I don't <laughs> love no, no a churro. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> anyway, I very much enjoy these Disney references. Wonderful. Okay, going back to the chapter, am I the only person who's, mm-hmm. I kept thinking about all these people who were coming into the service and wondering about their lives. What brought them here? Do they know how close they are to absolute horror? You know, what tiny decision are they making that that allows them to walk away instead of hopping on a bus? You know, I just, do you know what I mean? I keep thinking about this. Yeah. I need to know these things. She Mm -hmm. has me worried about a whole group of people who we never even meet Mm -hmm. and hoping that they didn't end up at Chapman Farm. I'm sure most of them didn't. I don't think, I think most people don't go hardcore. They might go to a few services. They might casually commit and give them some money. So hopefully, no. It's just that part of me that wants to run in and warn everybody, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We see Robin looks at the big mural up on the the ceiling with all the prophets. Does anyone have anything about the actual paintings? The one thing that I thought about was 
the glorification of suicide where they've painted mm. the noose around graves's neck and is flying out behind yeah. him it's horrifying and it's intentional because i mean it's been shown that glorifying suicide speaking of it as an inevitability reporting on it in certain ways it makes it much more likely that more suicides will happen and if ex-members of the church kill themselves they can't spill church secrets so am i paranoid yeah. in thinking that this is a deliberately strategy to plant this idea not at sides? all not no? at all i thought i thought that was implied yeah absolutely and yeah it's deeply no, I totally agree. and creepy oh of course it solves all their problems mm. let's talk about the song heroes because this is the first time we see it and it's a surprise to Robin. And every time it comes up in the book, I just kept thinking about how this is how the UHC wants to portray themselves as heroes. Yeah. Every time it comes up, I just think of the elephant love medley from Moulin Rouge. Because before this book, that's the only time I've, I'd ever actually heard that song as part of that love medley. Uh, um, I um, <laughs> so, I have also not seen Moulin Rouge. I'm also not surprised. a wonderful love story and a wonderful yeah. movie. I'm not surprised in the least that you haven't seen it. <laughs> I would have been surprised if you had, but uh, I'm sure that many of our listeners will know what I'm talking about with mm -hmm. Heroes and the Elephant Love Medley. So that's my main association with the song. I think one of the most powerful instances of it being used mm -hmm. is when there's like, there's a big party and Robin's scared and exhausted trying to look happy. It might've happened twice. Is there two times that they had there a party? There are two. But there's just something so powerful to me about these people using this song to boost their own ego and call yeah. themselves heroes when the real hero is this scared almost frail exhausted brave woman in their midst who refuses to give up and who's going to take them down i don't know it just does something for me oh she is the real hero she's the hero this whole time love it okay so then here is where we meet jonathan wace and he <laughs> says that today is the day of the wounded prophet and it kind of makes me wonder what's going on at chapman farm because you know Ooh, there's going to be a whole thing yeah i wonder what yeah. they do for his manifestation i know i'm feeling like scary spectral headlights from a car that's about to slam into the audience like in haunting of Bly <laughs> yeah, manor yeah. with the eyeglasses that were very scary what's that the Haunting of Bly Manor is a very great Flanagan horror show. But there's a ghost that follows the protagonist around in a mirror. And every time you see him, it's just a man standing in the mirror, jump scare with giant glowing. And later you find out nice. that it was her, yeah, it was her ex-fiance who died because she told him that she couldn't be with him anymore. And he died, he got out of the car because they were arguing. He got out of the car and immediately he he heard a truck horn. He turned around. The headlights made his glasses glow and then bam, mm. right into him. So him with the glowing eye glasses has been oh. following her around, just appearing in all kinds of creepy jump scares. I'm feeling that. Something like that. Yeah. yeah but Blood Man was see really good. It was my favorite Flanagan show. Let's talk about Rusty Anderson. Okay. <laughs> First of all, and this is not important. It's yeah. not important, but I laughed at the American being named Rusty because it just sounds so American, doesn't Rusty. it? Do you know what I mean? It is deeply American. Also, I want to note, there are so many other Americans and people who look American mentioned in this novel. Yeah. And I feel like it means something. Along with the fact that Strike and Robin are suddenly drinking a ton of coffee instead of tea and eating pizza for their takeaways instead of curry all the time. I'm just saying mm. it's sus and I'm keeping track of this stuff. Like, because we had that American therapist last chapter. Now we've got Rusty. Are you saying that Strike and Robin are going to come to America? 
because can I suggest Southern California? I'm not not saying it. Yeah, maybe actually Disneyland. What do you? It could happen. I can finally go to a location. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit. Mm, there's a lot of American stuff going on suddenly mm. here. Interesting. Yeah. The whole story about Rusty Anderson is where Jonathan Wace gets his catchphrase. I admit the possibility. Basically that Rusty didn't agree with Wace's beliefs until the night he died. He told Jonathan Wace that he admitted the possibility, wrote him this letter, and then was tragically hit by a car. Am I the only one who doesn't believe this? No. no. Okay, good. I was and still am 100% sure that Wace is basically making most of this up wholesale. Yeah. He's a useful figure that Wace has basically fictionalized to serve his own purposes. Yeah. Okay, good. Because I don't think I've, I've ever talked to someone about this, but I've been operating under the assumption that it's all nonsense, yeah. right? I, I believe Same. the dude was hit by a car and he was probably friends with Wace, but the whole thing about the letter or Rusty admitting any possibility, I just think yeah, is just no. completely mm. made up so that he could exploit the situation. Yeah. Let's like get a handwriting Diane. analysis on that letter. And I think we'll see who really wrote it. Yeah, you know? exactly. Mm -hmm. If we're back to my ridiculous suggestion about, you know, all the ghosts of the prophets hanging around the farm <laughs> and fighting with so each other, annoying, yeah. I imagine that Rusty is pissed because yeah. this is an inaccurate representation of his life and his death. I think Rusty's hella pissed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of sad if, I mean, if we're correct, it's kind of sad because no one is ever going to know. Oh, yeah. Okay. Kind of a bummer. Well, yeah, that's, uh, no, I'm bummed out. Sorry about that. So this is something that one of our listeners is actually written into us about before but whenever Jonathan Wace is talking about the story with Rusty and he says I whom God had helped so much could show him what I'd learned what I'd seen which made me know not think not believe not hope but know etc etc I think that there's a connection between that and that bit in chapter 86 the parallel structure, I think, is sort of underlining the difference between this artificial sense of connection that Wace is trying to generate there at the meeting, right, versus the genuine, profound connection that Strike and Robin have that allows her to know that Strike is there. Yes, I love this parallel because, yeah, Wace is pretending to this connection. His entire knowing is a front, a scam. And Robin in her lowest moment has a genuine knowledge that comes not from taking advantage of people, not from pretending to a knowledge you don't have. It comes from her faith in strike there is like a spiritual connection mm -hmm. spiritual connection there's so genuine and it is real and profound mm. emotions hey, closet time how are any of us gonna make it through this book <laughs> is my question because yeah it's gorgeous oh this book is just it's so good it i don't know like so does, does joe understand how good she is <laughs> i hope she does this is so she, good. i'm sure she does i'm sure she wrote this and she's like Holy shit, I wrote a good <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Ooh. obviously we're going to have to come back to this because we'll we'll get to that part again. Yeah. There's this line here later where Jonathan Way says, I'd rather face an honest skeptic than a hundred who believe they know God, but are really enthralled to their own piety, their insistence that only they and their religion have found the right way. And I'm just thinking, could he be telling on himself more with that right this makes me think it's just like prudence said this cult waste he wants the intellectually curious the skeptics because they're the easiest to hoodwink it's why amandeep mm. becomes one of the most zealous converts it's what happened to will the smart ones 
fall the hardest for this cult because their defenses are down because they are so assured of their own ability to resist and your actual point about him telling on himself i mean yeah yeah that's him enthralled to your own piety next here is where he gets everyone to say the words i admit the possibility and like joe and the epigraph says the door is cracked open which again i find horrifying because i'm worried about all these people (laughs) i guess the good news is even if someone went after this it didn't last for much longer than this right because robin yeah it's you know a few months later this church is gonna be burnt to the ground god it makes me think about the people who've been in there for so long just this idea that they don't know the end is coming and what their life is going to be afterwards just to ease your i'm i bet that most of the people in this sermon were just curious or casual members they're not getting the full-on farm treatment they're okay Lindsay. these fictional characters (laughs) are safe at home watching netflix eating ice cream bars you know yeah let's talk about the thing where waste tells everyone to think of a number or word or something and he says soon you'll leave this temple and go about your life if it should happen that that word or that number forces itself upon your notice before midnight tonight well it could be a coincidence couldn't it it could be chance but you've just admitted the possibility that it is something else this is a psychological trick right i mean obviously if you're on the lookout for something you're going to see it more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it absolutely is i believe that this is mm-hmm. called officially the bader meinhof phenomenon or frequency bias basically you're more focused on a thing because you've thought of it so you're more likely to notice it when it appears where yeah. you normally wouldn't it is your own cognitive processes and your focus that have changed, not the appearance of the thing, which would have appeared anyways, because we are surrounded literally 24-7 by numbers and words. Basically, Wace is well aware of how to manipulate subconscious bias and cognitive functions in other people. He is an expert at this shit. He's a con man. It reminds me of when people say they always see the time when it says 11-11 or something. Yeah. And it's funny because I put that in the notes last night. And then what did I notice last night? 11, seriously 11? that happened yeah. to me yes yeah. I, so because I you remember it. the times when you look at the clock and it says 11 11 you don't remember all of the times right. when you look at the clock and it says exactly. like 6 15 of course so this is definitely a real thing this is not magic and then the chapter ends with the young blonde woman speaking about some of their charitable goals notice how all of their so-called charitable actions involve them getting access to vulnerable populations. The homeless, young people with caring duties, providing shelters, i.e. indoctrination centers, giving holidays, i.e. isolating and controlling young people, schools in Africa. We know their idea of education. All of their charitable activities are actually a pipeline to recruiting new members into this cult so they get a return on their investment. It is despicable. That's how uh, Wen was recruited because she was in one of their um, shelters because she was pregnant and homeless later in the book. Oh, yeah. Anyway, fun note to go out on. (laughs) But I will say that reading this chapter for the first time, I got a chill up my spine because you can recognize so easily just how charismatic Wace is, how perfectly pitched the sermon is to tug at people's heartstrings. We're seeing an absolute master of manipulation at work here. I'm as atheist as they come. And I feel like I might have felt something sitting in that audience. Uh, To me, this was terrifying. This first encounter Mm -hmm. with Wace. I was set up to be very afraid of him. It's interesting because for me, I almost had the opposite reaction personally. Mm -hmm. I think it must come from going in 
as a person with an established faith already. And even more so, I grew up in church. I was even a pastor's kid for a lot of my childhood. So what she's describing in this chapter is very familiar to me. Mm -hmm. It's different, obviously, but it's familiar. So it didn't feel as impactful, I think. My biggest thing, I was thinking, wow, that was short because... It's not how church and usually, it's not, <laughs> it's not usually as that short. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah, church is usually a lot longer, but I can totally see how it would be if it's someone who's going in searching and curious. That is so interesting because I grew up, well, I mean, technically Catholic, but I went to Catholic school until grade 12 and I had to sit through a lot of Catholic masses. There's no charisma in a Catholic mass. It's very different. This is much more familiar to me. And I know in some interview, J.K. Rowling has talked about attending church. Really? So I feel like she got she this got good. She knows, she knows what's up. Yeah, yeah, no, all of my religion complexes are Catholic in origin. So I don't really identify with the like evangelical, the charismatic. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, yeah, this is very, it's almost very normal to me, even though it's different. This is fascinating. We should do a comparative blog post about our religious perspectives on this cult. <laughs> What are we doing next time, Kens? All right. So in next week's episode, we're going to be doing chapters 11, 12, and 13. And in those chapters, we're going to see Strike going over to Lucy's house to tell her about the case. We're going to see Strike making a poor emotional choice. And Mm -hmm. then we also get to see uh, Robin arranging an interview with one of the XUHC members. I am really looking forward to talking about the Lucy chapter. I love it so much. And I really like the epigraph and the hexagram for the Bijou chapter because it's, I got a funny bit for that on one of my cards that was really perfect. So a lot of good things coming up. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at The Essie Files Pod. You can also contact us on our website at theseefilespod.com or email us directly at essefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of The Strike and Ellicott Files.